Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. And this is a podcast where we bring indigenous worldviews and western worldviews into conversations about science in Indian country. And on today's episode, we're releasing another excerpt from the ACES National Conference live stream event we did back in October. We interviewed a young man named Ronan. He's from Alaska, he's Tlingit, and he's a scientist. The three of us sat around for about an hour and talked about all sorts of stuff. We touch on everything from the use of words like indigenous and Indian, all the way to things like balance and reciprocity. You know, the three R's and stuff. And we also hit on important issues like consultation and community consent. It was recorded in a live setting with all sorts of people coming and going, so bear with us on some of the extra background chatter that's going on. And as usual, if you have any questions, feel free to send us an email or leave us a review. Thanks for tuning in to the Indian Science Show. Relax, sit back, and enjoy the interview. Here we are with Ronan. I love your name, by the way. Thank you. You ever heard of the Ronan with the samurai and all that? How they're like a rebel samurai without yeah, a lord? Yeah, that's actually why my parents named me that. They thought it was really cool meaning. So. Yeah. Oh, really? Isn't yeah. there a movie? There's two movies. 47 yeah, Ronin? There's 47 mm-hmm. Ronin, Cultural Appropriation with Keanu Reeves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, not, not very accurate at all. No. Uh, <laughs> and then there's also Ronin, which is an older movie from around the time I was born with Robert De Niro. Oh. <coughs> Jeez. I love that movie so much that I choked myself <laughs> trying to say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got really excited about that I've movie. I've never actually seen that one. I, uh. I, I never finished 47 Ronin either. Oh, well, after that the reaction. R- the Ronin one is really good. That. It's about, like, they're, uh, they're like criminals and they're setting up, a, like, a bank robbery or something. It's been a long time, but I remember it being a really good movie. Uh, it's one of those good re- De Niro flicks that doesn't didn't really get that much attention. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit curious. So, yeah, uh, not, yes, the day before yesterday, when you were in the session listening to Kaya, Annie, and I talk, how did you feel about that word indigenous and the way we were using it? Uh, I, I mean, I use it as a blanket term just mm-hmm. in general because, like you guys were saying, there's so many, I think it was you guys, there's so many different cultures out there to mm-hmm. refer to. Um, I use I use indigenous. I think it, personally, it's better than Indian. It, mm. uh, Indian is just the completely wrong culture in general. So yeah. indigenous, at least, it's not false identifying us as something else. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I've talked to my mother about this idea, and she is uh, oh my gosh, uh, she just turned sixty, and so she uses the word Indian, and I think that it's it's funny how different generations like different words mm-hmm. and she was like well that's just what when i was in school that's what the word was right well they were also doing a bunch of other horrible yeah, things exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, for blackfeet i don't i don't think every family or every blackfoot person thinks this way of course but generally like the word savage the in a lot of the laws and uh, other documents that the united states had about the blackfeet nation they labeled us as the savages of the high plains but we love that word savage and in a lot of ways we've taken it and redefined it to be and took ownership over that word and i maybe i think that's maybe kind of what your mom is talking about yeah i can see that well i think now whenever someone does something that is uh 
What is it when, when you do something that's like, uh, I don't know. It's like a young YouTube thing when, like, someone does something and it's, like, hurtful to someone else. They're like, oh, that's savage. You know, like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's how I've used it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like the, the security guard walked past, like, some lady over there who was trying to yell at him. And he just, like, kept walking past. The only thing I thought of was, like, damn, that was savage. Because, like, she just, like, kept walking. He didn't yeah. acknowledge anything that yeah, I just yeah. said. We could just start saying, damn, that's Blackfeet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true. That's so Blackfeet, right? <laughs> uh, that is something, though. We do have a reputation in Montana, among other tribes, for being mean. Or for being, like, really brutal. Crows, yeah. We yeah. Crows. Yeah. And there, there's that whole, they call us historical enemies. But I've been told by a lot of cultural leaders and elders that that wasn't how it was. Yeah, we fought, but it was mostly the young people, teenagers and young warriors. They'd go off and fight each other, but the elders had understandings with each other. And it wasn't about conquering. It wasn't about killing. It was about learning who you are and testing your own boundaries and finding out what it means to be a man and what it means to be a warrior. So it was very, it was much more important to count coup, to just go up, go up and touch somebody and get close enough to touch them when they could kill you if they wanted to. That is like this is the ultimate act of warriors in, in our culture. But in the modern world, those situations don't come up very much. So a lot of the young men are lost because we don't have those opportunities anymore. And they're, yeah, it's really tough though because I mean, I don't think that would necessarily be a good thing if we were to go and start doing that again, mm-hmm. going <laughs> fighting with each other. Uh, we do it anyways, but it's kind of, it usually happens at parties now. So it can be, it's a totally different situation. Mm-hmm. And it's very much more dysfunctional. Um, so yeah, that, what do you think about that? The whole traditional enemy stuff. Have you heard about that up in Alaska? Oh yeah, there's, there's traditional enemies up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. They're getting height of people. Um, oh yeah. So my people and people a little further south to uh, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, some in Alaska as well. Um, they, were, they were warring tribes. Uh, I mean, sure, we weren't always at war with each other. But there were wars between us. There were also wars with the Clinkets and other cultures as well. The uh, most famous historical one I can think of is with Russians when they Ooh. came and tried to settle in Alaska. Yeah. But the thing is, um, every, every culture has had wars. I mean, mm-hmm. you look back in any culture, it could be Scandinavian people, it could be Asian, any Asian people you can think of. They all had wars. They were all warring with each other for thousands and thousands of years. I don't understand why the Alaskan Native and the American in, or Indigenous people of America are viewed differently for it. Like, yeah, we had plenty of wars. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be warrior people. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there are other plenty of other cultures that yeah. did that as well. Like, yeah, it was just different. Yeah. We did it differently. I personally think it's because it's it's not as far back as some of those other cultures. They seem to think they've progressed further uh, than uh, uh, the Americans. Wow, I never thought about it yeah. like that. Like, but, they advanced even in their warfare. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean... But I don't know. Maybe yeah. you could think of a different... The so, opposite, too, right? Yeah, so, so okay. So, I guess when I think of older wars, it's generally this idea of you want to conquer as much land as you want, right? As, as you can have. Yeah. Versus, I think, uh, indigenous wars was more like, hey, this is our little area. You need to kind of stay out of our little area, right? Yeah, often it was like the common hunting grounds is a very, uh, one of the more common sources of those conflicts. Yeah. And it's usually when someone went against a previous agreement where this is when we are going to be here 
and this is when you are going to be here. You know, let's just make sure we don't step on each other's toes. And when that didn't work out, then conflicts would break out because it literally was survival. I mean, if you didn't get enough meat and berries for the winter, you were screwed. I think it shows a lot of respect for people too. Yeah. Who are who live in the same area? Yeah, that we could you. actually make those agreements like mm-hmm. that without written languages, without kind of any documentation of any kind, mm-hmm. and then have it work as well as it did. That yeah, that's definitely really, really cool. But there, I think we need to take some of this with a grain of salt because really, we don't know how it was. We don't. Be, even our even our elders. They learned from people that were around in the turn of the century. And things were very different at the turn of the 20th century than they were at the turn of the 19th century. So I think that's important. But I love when Neil talks about stuff because their stories are so close to that really that deeper mm-hmm. history back to the 1700s and yeah. stuff. And um, a part of that, I think, is because they have, have that long history of colonialism in their culture mm-hmm. over in the Onondaga and area and even in Haudenosaunee territory in general. Um, I'm not really familiar with... So when did the Russians actually start settling in Alaska? Uh, There's not... I I don't know if there's an exact uh, year, because I think it was multiple times throughout history, but Mm -hmm. um, around the late 1600s, early 1700s, they tried to come into southeast Alaska. Hmm. Uh, Prior to that, though... Russians had made contact with the Aleutian Islands, Alaska natives. Ah, yeah. Uh, and then they just sort of worked their way across Alaska. Uh-huh. And um, if you go back, if you go up there now, there's a lot of people that are still Russian Orthodox, or you see Russian Orthodox churches. Yeah. That was their first contact with Christianity was the Russian Orthodox people. Hmm. Wow. That's something a lot of people have no idea about, that the Russians colonized Alaska. Oh, the Russians and, had a huge impact on yeah. Alaska that we still see today, actually. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Uh, so I just did a report on this, actually, uh, last semester. Tell uh, us. Tell us Sea otter populations. What? So uh, Russians came into Alaska. And I don't want to make it sound like I have any blood or bad blood with Russian people. I, <laughs> well, I mean... Actually, I love the, Russian history. The I think they're pretty cool. I think, um, you're, I think it's yeah. okay to talk bad about Russia. Just, just, I think, I think <laughs> yeah, this is a good time. They hacked us. <laughs> we can talk shit. Okay. So, uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, Russian settlers came into Alaska. And they started with the Aleutian Islands, just be- Aleutian Islands, because that's right next to Russia. It mm-hmm. almost touches Russia. You can... You can see Russia from your house. No, you can't. But it's a famous saying, Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, man. Uh, she was the best. <laughs> so, so silly. Uh, they came there and uh, they started um, colonizing the Aleutian Islands. Uh, There's severe mistreatment of the Alaska natives that were there. Uh, and then they used them to hunt sea otters in the area because the Aleutian people were very, very good hunters. They had... Uh, the proper equipment to go out and hunt sea otters. Mm-hmm. So they would have them go out, kill as many sea otters as they could, bring them back, and sell the skins. Mm. Uh, mm. Because of that, the sea otter population dropped dramatically. It was They were basically wiped out for a long time, yeah. uh, which just made them more valuable. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not only Russians. After that, Alaska was purchased uh, by the United States, and then uh, hunting continued, and the sea otter price uh, increased tenfold. It went from about 150 to 
up to about $1,500 for a pelt. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so after that, there was uh, litigation over it. People were saying, hey, there's no more sea otters here. We don't know where they went. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, <laughs> we don't know where they went. <laughs> we don't know where they Oh, yeah. Well, hey, you, uh, <laughs> you kind of killed all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so now they're, they are protected under the Marine Mammals Protection Act, mm-hmm. uh, which keeps white people from killing them and hunting them, but um, it allows Alaska natives to go out and harvest them for traditional reasons. Yeah. Was there any, was there, was there a fight to be able to be able to fulfill that responsibility as native people or was it, was it pretty like, Oh yeah, of course. So that, um, there was, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm sure there was a lot of litigation, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of, uh, what we, achieved as Alaska Natives was from uh, Alaska Native corporations, uh, regional corporations. So the, uh, there's the biggest one, uh, well, I guess they're all really big, but um, there's Sea there's Alaska, there's Siri, which is Cook Inlet Regional in, uh, Incorporated. Uh, I can't remember the name for the Aleutian Islands, but uh, Interior Alaska is covered by Doyon. Uh, and all of those corporations, they... Uh, it's, it's a shareholder base, so every Alaska Native in the area has a share for that company or that corporation, and those corporations then pass our Alaska Native voice and values uh, on to, uh, they, have, like, they have the resources to get our voice out there in the political world. Hmm. So I know one thing that I struggle with with my own tribal council is the fact that it seems like the voice of the council is not necessarily the voice of the people. Do you find that to be kind of similar, or because you're a corporation that is really for the people, do you find it that there's more of a connection with the people and the people that can make those decisions? Uh, I don't think it's possible to get everybody, like, to, to fulfill everything for everybody. Mm-hmm. We have to do the greatest good with what we can. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of those companies do is they, I mean, they can't, they can't do everything, yeah. uh, but they take what they can do and um, they give it back to the people. Okay. Mm. Wow, that sounds a lot better than what we got going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's a bit of a shift. We uh, we have had a a little bit of a um, regime change in mm-hmm. our tribal council, but it has yet to be seen what's going to happen with that. Yeah. I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm definitely kind of I'm. I feel like I'm a pessimistic optimist, where I'm optimistic, but I'm very aware of reality. So, uh, but uh, it's very difficult to maintain that and not let that switch (laughs) to being a pessimistic optimist where I'm like, oh yeah, but oh, (laughs) I'd rather be the other way. (laughs) But cool, I know that, and what's really weird about where we're from, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, is we are an Indian Reorganization Act government. So it's structured off of, off of the federal government. But what's weird is at the same time, they s- developed a corporate charter. So we are also a corporation. We, so all members are also shareholders. And in that document, the corporate charter, it stipulates that the members in the corporation itself is a sue or be sued corporation. Yet in the Constitution, it says that we have sovereign immunity. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's a very dangerous situ- situation for, uh, I think the best example is for companies like Monsanto. If they were to patent some genes of our cultural plants and then find those genes in some of our traditional gathering grounds, then they could sue under international and federal law. 
And unless we have our own documents and our own law system to fight back against that, we're going to have to play their game. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's a winning game. It's kind of like playing, you're like a checkers champion and you jump in with a chess master and you think you're going to do good. (laughs) You're going to do good, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like these kinds of things are really important to be aware of. And Mm -hmm. it does seem like that incorporation does have a lot of benefits, though. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, so I know we haven't had a chance to talk to you since our presentation, right. and I know you have questions or um, ideas I had, or something you want to talk there about. There was uh, one comment I wanted to make. Uh, okay. It was about Alaska Native input into resource development options. Okay. I was told you guys I could think of a couple examples mm-hmm. off the top of my head that uh, Alaska Natives were given a direct voice into okay. the resource development. Yeah, I'd, um, I'd love to hear them. There's uh, one I can think of. First one I could think of was uh, BOEM. It's the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management. Okay. So they they manage the entire outer continental shelf of uh, the entire coast of the United States. And I'm, I'm not sure if you guys know, but Alaska has more coastline than the rest of the United States entire in, in its entirety. Oh so there's a lot of coastline for us to <laughs> crazy, look yeah. out for. Yeah. And off of that coastline are some very resource-rich areas, mostly oil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management, they went in, they wanted to develop resources off the coast of northern Alaska. Uh, and they weren't sure how the community would feel about it. So they brought in a panel of their own scientists and a panel of uh, Alaska Native elders from that community. And they spoke with both of them. And they used some of the examples and some of the ideas from the Alaska Native community and incorporated it into their research to, it was an environmental impact statement. So Mm. uh, to see if the impacts were actually going to be made, they asked the Alaska Native elders what they thought was going to happen should they do this development. Wow. Um, And they said in the paper, actually, the report about it, that uh, the Alaska Native elders came up with several things that the scientists had never even considered. Dang. Yeah, I wish I wish that would happen more often in our yeah. neck of the woods. I, I think that should happen everywhere. Yeah. Every time, yeah. I mean, and it just it's just practical too. Mm-hmm. It is. If you really yeah. want to do a good, the best job you can do and yes. have it be sustainable and save money in the long run, it's it's just pays off to involve local people, especially local indigenous people that have that deep time knowledge that you just can't get without living on the landscape for generations upon generations. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something that's more local to me, I'm from southeast Alaska. I'm uh, Clinkett. Uh, so I'm from Huna. And in Huna, there is the uh, Huna Native Forest Program, okay. or Huna Native Forest Partnership. And it's, uh, I think it's like eight or nine uh, regional corporations and uh, village corporations pairing together to restore the forest for the uh, Huna people. So there is a severe overgrowth uh, within the forest. Mm -hmm. It has a very, very prominent history in logging southeast Alaska. Uh, So we're going in there. I actually worked on the project for a very brief amount of time. Uh, We were going in and clearing a bunch of the understory and dead trees from the area uh, to increase sun exposure to the lower levels of the forest. Uh, and uh, it would allow more deer to enter the area and then in about 20 or 30 years they're going to go back and they're going to uh, harvest the trees from that area Mm. uh, for resource development. Hmm. Uh, 
the Alaska Native input comes in because uh, all of those corporations are representing the people. And yeah. They they try not to act out of what the people actually want. So Man, that's yeah. cool. So um, on this project, and so it's like a restoration effort. So yes. are 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 you guys planting certain um, like cultural keystone plants that? your people need or is it just kind of like forest growth so you're just doing like a it's uh, it's primarily forest growth so um there's there's not so much a increase in uh like invasive plants Mm -hmm. or a a lack of other plants it's just that there's too much growth going on in the understory okay and it's it's hindering the productivity of the area um so i know that for Certain tribes they've used low intensity fire regimes. Right. Um, is do you guys use fire in any way, or like how do you, how in the previous generations have you guys kept that kind of clear? Do you yeah, like sorry, like harvested like? Um, so if there's like an overgrowth, how in like generations before you did that area was clean before? Does that make sense? Uh, in, in previous generations, there yeah. was no restoration. It was it was all clear cut. If you go back to southeast Alaska now, especially where I'm from, you can see uh, scars across the mountains Mm -hmm. from where people clear cut the entire entire mountainside. Oh wow! Uh, And it's it's people think it's a long time ago. It's not. It's not that long Mm -hmm. ago. My grandfather was working on the on the clear cutting. Yeah. He was a he was really big in the timber industry. He was cutting down trees for Mm -hmm. a very long time, and he's he's still alive. It's. It's yeah. not like it was generations and generations ago. Yeah, my, my that's funny. My grandpa was actually a logger as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of interesting how now their generations are trying to actually rebuild forests. And, yeah, yeah. and conser- I'm doing conservation, so it's definitely on that kind of same, same line. So um, I, I know that uh, certain tribes use trees in medicinal ways. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys have medicinal plants like that with the uh, trees? There's uh, there's quite a few medicine people that still live in Huna. So they, they go mm-hmm. out and they harvest traditional plants and they make ointments and creams and medicines mm-hmm. out of them. I actually, at home up in Alaska, I have Devil's Club ointment. Oh, really? Which is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys know what Devil's Club is. But oh, oh, yeah. We got it around where we live. It's just kind of rare. Oh, okay. A really big prickly huge leaves and tree, giant yeah. knives on their stems yeah, they, they hurt but yeah. uh you can use the roots from that and uh some of the plant material i'm not i'm not a professional in it so i'm not sure what they use exactly but uh-huh. i heard uh, it's really powerful and you can yeah. poison yourself if you don't use it right so the the ointment i have i if, if you have a rash if you have a, a bruise a scrape a cut any anything that's hurting you can rub some of that devil's club ointment on there you'll be you'll be good to go nice do you make it yourself i do not okay uh, i know that that's that's where like the expertise comes in is if you get the wrong i guess the wrong ratio or the wrong dilution it can it, it is toxic plant right. so but that's some those are some of the most powerful medicines are the yeah. ones that are viewed as toxic or poisonous yeah it's just you got to treat them the right way yeah, yeah. Use them with the right stuff. Uh, my grandmother actually made it, and she passed away. But mm. uh, she used to make a lot of a lot of ointments like that. Uh, there's still, I think, three or four people in Huna that make it mm-hmm. consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question to you then, since your grandma has passed mm-hmm. away and you haven't learned to make it, do you have any interest to going to these three to four people and asking them how to make it? Um, I could. I could. Um, 
that's a really good idea. I never can I never considered asking them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it took me such a long time to actually find what I want to do and it was I was like 26 and so right. you know it took me a long time and, and now I'm like all for like asking help and, and doing all this stuff and, right yeah mm. and and I think that my I never knew my grandparents except for one and he was an alcoholic and so we never really spent a lot of time together so I think that it's fascinating that that you, you your grandma was able to do that and, right. and do that for you yeah it makes it more special too when you use it mm-hmm. yeah it's it's the same one I've had I I use it very sparingly now mm-hmm. because it's the last of what she made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can I can go get other stuff, and it's still Devil's Club ointment, but it's not, the same it's not my grandma's. Yeah, yeah. I feel the same way about fry bread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> my mom makes great fry bread. I make really great fry bread. But there's something about knowing that your grandma made it that mm-hmm. really just like ramps it up to that next level. Yeah. yeah. I guess I have a a beating book that was my grandma's and it has her name in there and, yeah. and I was named after her and so it was from like the 70s and so it's, it's probably one of my most prized possessions that is always with my beadwork. Mm-hmm. Something that you can't get rid of. I want to ask an off-topic subject just because you started talking about okay. about endangered species. Um, so I have a real love for manatees. Okay, Manatees? <laughs> I'm talking about manatees. Yep, again. we're going to do it. Okay, it's got a point though. Yeah, it's okay. got a point. Okay, So I've done a lot of evolutionary research on them in, in sirenias and so part of them is stellar sea cows and what i want to know and i've never asked this but does, does alaska natives have any kind of stories about stellar sea cows because i know russians came in and kind of killed them all stellar sea cows what are um what are, stellar sea are cows? they like are they a relative of manatees or are they yeah. type of manatees? so there's dugongs manatees and stellar sea cows and then in the 1800s Everyone came in. So stellar sea cows were the biggest ones, and they lived in the Alaskan region, Pacific Northwest region, and they were the largest. And then everyone came in and killed them for their. their Are they extinct now? Yep. Oh, bummer. I've I've never even heard of them. Yeah. Huh. Well, if you come across any stories, let me know because okay, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm I'm pretty curious in Sirenia. Yeah, I feel like a, maybe you told me about the stellar stellar sea cow. Yeah, that's a cool name. I talk about what kind of sea cow? A stellar, stellar one. Sea cows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm obsessed with them. Hmm. I have a tattoo of a manatee. Okay. So I see we got a. Um, oh, my auntie's on watching. Hey, Rita. Well, can you hear us? If you can hear us, go ahead and give a thumbs up or like say yeah or something. But if not, maybe we can try to fix the audio. We're we're still learning. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the first time we've ever filmed, so yeah, it's a learning process. Oh, I'm flattered. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you on the show, and I'm glad to I'm glad to hear so many different opinions <laughs> about uh, a lot of the same stuff. And it seems like we there's a lot of overlap. And we all tend to agree, but what we don't agree on is word use. That's like one of the main disagreements. But what's funny about that is we, whenever I get in conversations with people about words like indigenous or traditional, is in the end we do end up agreeing. But it's more like, oh, damn English. <laughs> we can't, it's so tough yeah. to translate some of our ideas to each other through English because yeah. it's not really built for that. It's but in a weird way, it kind of is because it's one of those weird languages that has so many different ways to express the same idea. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I'm curious to see what the future of English is going to be like. The future of yeah. English. Yeah, especially when China be- 
becomes the economic powerhouse of the world. And everyone starts being forced to speak Chinese to be able to do business. I wonder if that's going to like how that's going to affect English and what that what role that'll play in indigenous communities. Who knows? Yeah, well, I don't think I'll ever learn Yeah, do people in Alaska, are there still large populations of Russians up there? Um, I wouldn't say, like, there's a... I mean, there are Russians there, but I don't think Mm -hmm. it's a very prominent... um, Yeah, like, do you know of any families or big families of Russians that have been there since, like, colonial, since they started colonizing? I don't. Um... I'm not sure if there are any of them in Huna, uh-huh. uh, but if there are, I should ask. Mm. You guys are giving me all sorts of good things to ask. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, wh- where we're from, um, when uh, we when our reservation was created in 1855, um, we then in 1908 during the uh, allotment acts, 60 percent of the land was checkerboarded to white settlement white settlers so we have a very very large white population that has been there for a hundred and some odd years that, that 110 ish yeah that that we deal with that necessarily don't share the same ideas as indigenous people right. and i think it's interesting when we care about the place but then they also care about the place as well mm-hmm. because they've been there and the, so I think that's interesting if, if there are any Russians who have been there for a long time. Yeah, because they would have grown to love yeah. that place too, I'm sure. Yeah. Just I think that's a human thing where anytime we spend a long enough time in an area, uh-huh. you connect with it and you learn to love that landscape. I'm not so sure that's true in cities. I right. think it actually is though. <laughs> but because there's so many other distractions and so many other kind of chaotic, violent things going on, it's really difficult to maintain that connection, especially when you can't put your toes in the dirt, except for like at a park where yeah. that dirt probably was brought in from somewhere else anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's a really challenge, a challenge that I think is going to be a big issue for urban planners going into the 21st century is how do we re-indigenize cities, if that's even possible. I, I, I think it's possible. Me too. If you look back into Alaska Native, and I keep saying Alaska Native just because I'm from Alaska. That's no, cool. I know what you're it. talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> if you look into any uh, American indigenous history, you'll see so many hardships, mm-hmm. so many incredibly hard things to survive that we have survived through. Uh, I know Clinkett survived through an ice age uh, that pushed us out of our village and we just came right back. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure there are amazing stories of of your guys' culture, mm-hmm. where you just pers- persevered through these horrible hardships. And this is just another one of those things that Alaska Natives are going to persevere through. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. I like your attitude, man. Yeah. And I, I really agree. I think that that's going to change a lot is when the cities shift. Because they're really, the cities are responsible for the degradation of our environment. Mm-hmm. It's not our, uh, rural people so mm-hmm. much. And any effect rural people are having on the environment is really at, because the cities require all these resources that rural people can provide. Mm-hmm. So we're providing their livelihoods in the cities. Otherwise, cities just they can't work without large rural populations to mm-hmm. support them. So when we can bring the rural back into the urban and re-indigenize the way we live in cities, that's going to be a huge shift. And I know Native people are going to be a big part of that. Mm-hmm. 
urban um, Indians, man. <laughs> urban Indians. Yeah. Um, so I know that you want to work with the foresters and stuff like that. How do you feel about kind of this idea of nature being just for recreation? Yeah, or just resources. Or just resources. Yeah, that's um, So a, a huge value of the Clinket people is balance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something you see in a lot of indigenous cultures is mm-hmm. the, this need, this desire to, for things to be balanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's something we have to achieve with, uh, with nature. It's, uh, it is a place where we get all of our food, and it's a place where we can go and enjoy ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are certain areas that should be off limits to resource development uh, because they are great places to, to play, basically. Yeah. Uh, there are also places that are of great spiritual importance, uh, and that they should be off limits for resource development too. Uh, which is, uh, I stand for Standing Rock. Um, mm, yeah. I, I did a report on that for school as well, actually. Um, there, there are things we need to protect, and there are things that we need to keep open so people can enjoy themselves. Being outside and playing and having a good time and connecting with nature is a is what a lo- what natives did it's it's a big part of what we did and it's not something we can just stop doing because we want to we want to develop the city we want urban sprawl we want to have all these nice air conditioned houses in our petite little bourgeois suburban complex it's not it's not going to work that way mm-hmm. we have to we have to get people back outside. We have to get people out of the city. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely yeah, agree. I agree too. <laughs> so, or change the cities or to be more natural. Yeah, I see. There's a lot of trees planted outside. Um, it's nice. Yep. It is nice. Yeah. It's, this city actually is quite beautiful. I yeah. was a bit surprised. We're here in Bricktown, and yeah, there's actually really beautiful artwork. Mm-hmm. I love the murals. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot uh, of native murals. Yeah, and that that's my bad for stereotyping Oklahoma City yeah. because I've spent time here in Oklahoma but it's out in the countryside. Yeah. And so I gotta meet a lot of the country folk here in Oklahoma and they're not all they're not all um in agreement with native people. <laughs> Let's just right, put it yeah. that way. So I was taking my past experiences and posing them on this city, and I'm realizing that was a mistake because this is actually a pretty cool place, and everyone I've met here in the city so far has been really kind and actually pretty cool, uh, even the non-native folks. Mm-hmm. So I well, appreciate yeah. it. I'm well, I think Oklahoma has a weird uh, history when it comes to indigenous people as well. Yeah, I think Indian yeah. country kind of has just a negative connotation about mm-hmm. this place because of Indian territory and all yeah. that. Have you heard about, did you hear about the history of Oklahoma before you came here? I have not, no. And we mentioned it a little bit in where we stand Mm -hmm. when I mentioned, when I talked about that stuff. But yeah, it's, it's basically one of the, one of the hardest places to live because of the environment and the soils and everything. And, and it makes a lot of sense why they would send as many native people as they could here. Absolutely. yeah. 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 And this is where the people that walked on the Trail of Tears ended up is here in Oklahoma Territory, also known as Indian Territory. So it's got a really sad history. Mm-hmm. I wonder what, how, what kind of effect that has on the non-native population. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just think about it. Do you guys have any stories like that up in Alaska where they, the colonizers sent people marching? 
and moved displaced them like that, like I, sometimes thousands of miles? I don't think it was a march because yeah. uh, I don't think they would have made it if it was a march. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a, uh, around the time of uh, Pearl Harbor attacks, on, yeah. uh, so there was uh, a vast movement of uh, Aleutian Island natives. They just got picked up and dropped off on the opposite side of Alaska, which is, it's not like where they live. They didn't <laughs> know how to survive in that area because they're not from that area. Mm. On top of that, they were given really thin blankets and dilapidated houses that they were not going to be able to survive in. A lot of them passed away due to the disease and uh, just harsh conditions, uh, and there's no apology for it. They just got picked up and dropped off somewhere else. Hmm. Uh, yeah. The military occupied their, their original housing. That does a lot of damage it to does. the people and to the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hmm. I know that's like kind of what we talked about was this idea of how First Nations in Canada, how the government seems to be more recognizing past traumas that has been done to indigenous people. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, there seems to be a disconnect between what has been done and what the government wants to portray what they did. Yes. Yeah. It reminds me of how the Romans wrote about themselves. Very self-glorifying and aggrandizing mm-hmm. and very ignorant of the people's reality. Yeah. It's all about numbers, victory, and glory. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how American history is written and taught in public schools. Absolutely. They glorify the Civil War big time. Even though there were other Civil Wars that happened where the people didn't fare so well. So I think that's very important for all Americans just to be aware of our own history. And I think it's hard, though, because... And I don't blame them. Oh, there's Kai and Kathy. Oh, hey, babies. And yeah, I don't blame him. It's a painful history. I would be very ashamed if I had, if I thought or knew my ancestors did some of the things that the Americans have done to indigenous people. Yeah. But I'm a firm believer that the past doesn't equal the future. Yet, unless you understand the past and you know where you're coming from, not only are you in danger of repeating those mistakes that maybe were done to you or you did yourself, but it's going to be very difficult to understand what you don't want. And it's really hard to know what you want until you know what you don't want. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes we think we want what we want and then we go try it out and we're like, I don't think I want that. Yeah. Yeah, So, uh, hmm. Do you think that that situation is different up in Alaska? Where do you, you, does it seem like the Alaskan government is more willing to acknowledge past atrocities that were done? I think they like to think they do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think a lot of people uh, assume that an apology is what mm-hmm. indigenous people want. It's not. Mm. I don't yeah. think so anyway. I not think, unless it's paired with like, okay, so what are you going to do about it? Yeah. yeah. There has to be an action behind mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, while I think it's great that Canada is acknowledging those past atrocities, it doesn't make up for what no. are you doing about it. And yeah. I don't think that they actually are doing anything about it. Yeah. From, from what I've, at least what I've read about uh Canadian politics. It yeah. seems like they're kind of taking a backwards route about it and, and building pipelines. Yeah, there's more. not a positive connotation to yeah. reconciliation in Indian yeah. communities up there. Yeah. Uh, I know that for sure. Yeah. It's kind of viewed like a joke. We want our land back. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Even, yeah. even within Alaska, I mean, the land is still ours mm-hmm. under, under legality, but 
there's all sorts of red tape that you have to go through to mm-hmm. be able to do anything. It, yeah. There shouldn't be any red tape. It's and any red tape should be our own. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. imposed by a federal government 3,000 miles away. Exactly. And these are the same reasons why the Revolution War started. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it, but that was the fundamental reason was that taxation without representation. And taxes yeah. can for- come in many forms. So that's kind of like a cultural tax mm-hmm. in a certain way. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think we are a firm believer in the only way... Well, one of the only ways to be sovereign is for land, is yeah. for our land to come back to us. I'm curious how you view, like, settlers in, in Aboriginal territories. I know that with the Haudenosaunee, they're going through the land rights action, and they want, they want their land back, and that's it. They want to be able to fulfill their responsibilities to the land and take care of it again. And, but New Yorkers, especially politicians, view it like they're wanting to kick everyone out and send everyone packing. I don't... I don't think I think that would cause more trauma and atrocity. That's it's like we're doing the same thing back to them, and I don't think that is good. I don't want that. And I have a lot of friends that are settlers and that descend from Europeans, and I wouldn't want them to leave. I wouldn't want any of them to be sent back to Europe where they have no connection, they don't know anything about the land, and they don't speak any of those languages. So, I guess what I'm asking is, how do you feel about? the difference between sending them packing or just asking for land back and is the argument in Alaska to get the land back so we can fulfill our responsibilities or so we can decide who gets to be here and who doesn't? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, We're going to ask them tough questions. I think when, uh, at least when I say we want our land back, it's not that we want to kick everybody out. Mm -hmm. I don't want to kick everybody out. There's an entire, modern history is, it's their lives. It's what they've done. There's so much that's happened. Uh, this is their home too now. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure they took it by force, but they do yeah. live here now. Yeah. Uh, I think what I mean when I say we want our land back is we want to be able to make decisions about our land. Cool. Yeah, I think so that. I feel like we've we're on the same yeah. page there. <laughs> it's it's not that I want to kick everyone out. It's that <laughs> we want an equal voice in what we're doing with the land. Hmm. Uh, this actually is a segue into something I was wanted to m- bring up. Is uh, are you guys familiar with Anwar, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, so that, that's a big thing going on in Alaska right now is they opened up Area 1002 to uh, exploration for oil development. Okay. Uh, and Area 1002 is, I mean, it, there's a lot of terminology I'm going to throw at you guys. It's just, it's all legality okay. words. We're grad students, I think. Okay. We'll be able to, hopefully, I think so, I, we'll be able to keep up a little I'll, bit. I'll fake it until I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so Area 1002 is, uh, it's a coastal area. It's right at the top of Alaska, okay. well, top, north east Alaska. Okay. Uh, there's a really big area called Area 1002. It's called Area 1002 because in the paper, in uh, legislation uh, paperwork that they did for it, that's what the area was referred to as. It's Section 1002 of that uh, report uh, is referring oh, to that area. Oh, okay. So, I was going to ask why, yeah, where the so name is. So Area 1002 is a huge... Uh, flat plain like coastal area where caribou mate and reproduce and that's where all the calves are growing up that's where they're born so it's a very very sacred area because that's where they're the northern alaska natives that's where their food comes from mm-hmm. uh, but also if you drill down there is uh, a shitload of oil 
basically. There's a lot of oil for that we can ship out to other places and make a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the area was created for that reason. Uh, back when they wrote the paper, they knew that that area had a lot of oil in it. So they, op- they left it able to be opened up for exploration. But there's a huge outcry from the Alaska Native communities saying, don't develop in that area. That's where we, that's where all the caribou reproduce. That's where our food comes from. You can't just destroy the land because there's oil there. Uh, that's the sort of thing Alaska Native people need to be given a voice in because that's a huge chunk of your population that you're just disregarding mm-hmm. because oh, because they're brown. Mm. Because, because they were here first and we're stronger than them. We have better military equipment. We get to make the decisions. No. Mm. We, we're all from here. Mm-hmm. Now, anyway. Mm-hmm. We should all be given a voice in this development. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in everyone having a seat at the table. Yeah. Even the people you don't want there. <laughs> yeah. They, they, That's they, the hard they part, still... too, is being able to listen to people mm-hmm. that you don't like and you don't agree with yeah. and try to think of things from their perspective. I feel like when you... When you go into a state of empathy, it's very difficult. I don't, it might even be impossible to be judgmental and hateful when you can actually empathize with the, what people are going through and their experience. Uh, 43 minutes and counting. Oh, I was just Want to get some comments? Oh, I got interesting. More people coming and going. Cool. If you guys are interested in oh, hi, Rhonda. asking any questions, anyone listening to the live feed, Go ahead and drop it in the comments, and we'll do our best to answer it. Oh, yeah. Or, um, or if you just have any comments about <laughs> the quality or if we're doing a crappy job, let us know. <laughs> and we'll be sure to take that into consideration. Hello. Hi. Please let me know if I'm making myself sound like an idiot. Oh. Well, <laughs> You're doing the, pretty good. The main thing that we talk about is we are not experts on anything. We just yeah, we're talk live about streaming what right we now. Uh, it's a podcast. And what we're learning. Alaska. Yeah, we're talking about Ronan right and his experience. Are, <laughs> right now we are talking about the differences between Alaska Native uh, hardships and uh, the rest of the lower 48's uh, indigenous hardships. Uh, right now we're focusing kind of on uh, everybody should be given a voice. Uh, basically, we want our land back. That doesn't mean you guys have to leave. It means you need to give us a, a choice. Hey everybody, this is just a quick announcement for a new program we wanted to share. Are you an undergraduate science and engineering student interested in pursuing a career with NASA? Would you like to gain skills, knowledge, and competency in NASA missions, protocols, procedures, and practices? Or maybe you know somebody that might fit this description. Well, you're all in luck because there's a new student collaboration program that's a part of the NASA Lucy mission to Jupiter's Trojan Asteroids. This program is called the Lucy Student Pipeline Accelerator and Competency Enabler Virtual Academy. Dang, that's a mouthful. It's also known as NASA's L-Space Academy. These programs are interactive, team-based, and 12 weeks long. And they're designed to engage a diverse crowd of science and engineering students. This program begins on Tuesday, January 15th, 2019 at 4.30 p.m. Pacific Time which is 5.30 Mountain, 6.30 Central. I'm sure you get where I'm going with that. Like I said before, it lasts 12 weeks and only takes up one and a half hours per week of computer time, which is not that much at all, considering what you're getting, plus any homework and team projects you get. And all that's required to participate is a computer, internet access, and a headset or headphones with a mic. You can apply at bit.ly 
forward slash 2ZK1UAO. But you don't need to write that down or memorize that or anything. We'll go ahead and just link that in the show notes for you. You can also send them an email at lspace at asu.edu. That's lspace dot, or sorry, lspace at asu.edu. I think it sounds like a pretty cool program. Too bad I'm not an undergraduate student or an engineering student. But anyways, good luck with your applications. Now let's go ahead and get back to the interview with Ronan. Rhonda. Okay, so I'm I sorry. went and changed and got my um, my outfit on. Because it's cold in here, I yeah. guess. <laughs> I it feels comfy. I, I, I feel really comfy. Hot. Are you hot? Is it extremely hot here for you? I am dying. Oh, actually. I am dying, Constantly. and I'm not even from Alaska. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like, like I acclimate quickly. Because I'm not cold, but I'm also not hot either. I just like the way this feels on my head. <laughs> Dude, I love how beanies feel on my head. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that rub my face on this thing all the time (laughs) (laughs) but okay so let's answer Rhonda's question yeah oh hey Auntie Tracy love you too what are some traditional what are some traditional values this probably looks really weird me leaned over all weird okay okay I see it what are some traditional values that can help build relationships among all species that's a great question that is a great question Uh, what would you have to say about that Ronan some traditional more. values among to build relationships among all species. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, I think I'm going to take your answer. So uh, that I think balance again is what I would I would bring it back to. Is, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't speak for other cultures, but for the Clinket people, there's uh, everything has a spirit. Uh, so there's the spirit of the trees, the spirit of the water, the spirit. Can you bring your mic a little bit closer. Oh. Uh, everything has a spirit, Good. so um, it's. I can't think of a single traditional value to build relationships among all species. I think that's just what the Clinket people did uh, every day of their life. It's uh, everything we do is in balance with everything else. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I think, I think Alaska natives, Clinkets especially, just in general emanate relationship building mm-hmm. among all species it's something we strive to do yeah yeah okay so i'm curious what you're gonna say kind of building off of that i'm gonna say the three r's oh yeah, yeah. no not four well four well not see seven not seven <laughs> yeah see yeah. how many but i'm trying to think of more r's i mean there's five right yeah i'm, I got, I'm to gonna think, say some z's you're gonna say some z's no um so i think that in order to kind of have everything as a whole, you need to understand, uh, you need to have respect for the plant. You need to understand the reciprocity that comes with the plant. Hmm. Then yeah. you need, then you have the responsibility to the plant. And then relevance, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out that relevance. Are. I think that's kind of more, it speaks to that place-based-ness. Okay. So really, yeah. like, is it relevant to that community? Yeah. That's kind of how I think about it. And then I think extremely important is the relationship that you do bring to the to the plant, and yeah, really understanding that. I think seasonal rounds are extremely important as well because I think that shows you that we know that it all is a circular process; that everything is going to end up coming back around, mm-hmm. and. I think that tying that all together is just really understanding how you can't have one thing without the other. 
I think that that is probably, I guess, my answer is respect, respect reciprocity, reciprocity, and responsibility. R. <laughs> Another R. Yeah, this is something in, we've uh, we've identified three R's, or we didn't identify them, but they were presented to us in our program: the respect, responsibility, and reciprocity. Yet there are other places where they're using more R's, mm-hmm. other R's. I like things in threes, but I know that four is a really significant number for Native people, too. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I really love those three R's, and they work for me. Yeah, I feel like I, I connect more. I mean, I, the relationship, I think, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. But I think relationship can also tie in I, with all reciprocity. All three of those yeah. are about relationship, mm-hmm. how we relate to our relatives. Exactly. And I think that would be my tip is to stop looking at the animals and the water and the rocks like they're these things that they're like they're resources mm-hmm. but more like those are our relatives like our rock yeah. relatives i have these rocks that i take care of and over time i've they become my best friend some of my best friends and yeah. they don't always talk they don't really speak english or anything mm-hmm. but we communicate with each other and i have to i have to be able to take a step back and realize my own place as a pitiful human in order to be able to do that mm-hmm. otherwise i don't really it's like they're just rocks mm-hmm. but again in a practical sense they are just rocks just like i'm just a human we're we're not there's nothing there, there's differences between us but there's no hierarchical up and down difference yeah does that make sense yeah, so they're all all our relations, and I know Winona Leduc has a really cool book about that called All Our Relations, and this is something I think that is one of those universals that we all kind of relate to the land as if it's our mother, mm-hmm. and that's a relationship that's based in family, not ownership. So I think switching that from ownership to family that would be a huge step. Yeah, but I think you you both kind of said that, but yeah. like a little more um, specifically. I think a lot of it comes by um, being aware of your surroundings as well. Oh, yeah. I think that is what I'm coming to terms with when I'm trying to be more eco-conscious of my life and really kind of understanding little steps like not using straws or not using plastics, using reusable bottles, like Mm. really kind of just being aware of where you're located, what do you want to do, and I think... You can't determine what, how to interconnect everything in your life if you're not aware of your surroundings. Yeah, that's, and that comes back to balance. Because really, uh, that's what awareness is, is you're cultivating balance. By cultivating awareness, and by cultivating balance, you cultivate more awareness. Mm-hmm. And the more aware you become, the more impossible it becomes to ignore the truth that's in front of you mm-hmm. or behind you. And once your awareness expands, there's no going back. It's one of those things. So, yeah, that awareness is critical. And it really starts with asking yourself mm-hmm. questions. Yeah. She answered. Okay, so... Oh, yes, it's our pleasure, Rhonda. <laughs> if anybody else has any questions, feel free to drop us a line. I think we're probably going to cut it... Um, here yeah, we're probably going to end the show here shortly. But, yeah, Annie, I think um, maybe I'll have another one after you. 
Oh, one more. Okay, so the one of the only questions I think that we consistently ask every person that is oh, on our... I forgot to ask that. Yeah, okay. On our podcast is, what are your three tips for being indigenous in the modern world? Oh. I'm going to put you right on the yeah, spot. On the spot. You, usually we're, we're like, we'll email one. before, but, uh, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Three tips for remaining indigenous in a modern world? Yep. Um, uh, geez. Uh, first one I would say is to do your best to learn your language. Uh, there's a, I don't, they call it a clinket proverb, but I think it's a very common proverb. Uh, it's when you lose the, when you lose your language, you lose your culture. Hmm. Uh, so if you don't, if you can't speak to your ancestors or if you, you don't have the ability to mm-hmm. understand what your ancestors are saying, how can you continue their legacy? Mm. Uh, the second one, let's see, coming up with these on the spot. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Uh, so <laughs> that's cool. It's a, in a way, um, it's kind of it's a, challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's usually whatever pops into your head is kind of how you feel about it too. Yeah. And yeah. If you come up with other stuff later, you can send us an email. Or, yeah. And we could drop it in our show notes. Uh, I would say go out onto your traditional lands. Uh, so I, I'm going to school in interior Alaska, mm-hmm. but my people come from southeast Alaska. So every summer when I'm not going to school, I go back down to southeast, and mm-hmm. um, I live in my traditional lands, which is which is great. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. I definitely feel a connection to the area. Mm-hmm. So learn your language, go to go go home, basically, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I don't have a third one for you. That's cool. I think we decided on three just to like challenge people. But if right. you don't have three, that's no problem. And we love three. Yeah, obviously. yeah. <laughs> the three became a very significant yeah. number in my life this year, and so I'm rolling with it. Yeah, I'm rolling with it. I uh, I have the three tattooed on me, so I, yeah. I tend to really appreciate the number three. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. I think those just those two. That's really powerful. Mm-hmm. How do you yeah. feel about um, quote unquote air quotes non-indigenous people? to maybe re-indigenize I know that I've given that recommendation to go to your homeland mm-hmm. at least visit there doesn't mean you gotta live there yeah. or like bring your whole family back or anything but to go spend some time there so you can learn and listen and I know that has a profound impact on every person that <laughs> kind of followed, followed up on that and said I did what you recommended and wow mm-hmm. Uh, it's there's a lot of power going to where you know your ancestors had been for thousands of years. Yeah, so coming from the reservation and going back to the Bitterroot Valley, yeah, I feel like is a stronger because we were moved uh, 55 miles from where our homelands were, and now it's just all um, kind of white. <laughs> now it's just all white. Yeah, the, 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 there's no um, yeah, very checkerboarded. Um, yeah. I heard the the majority of the land on the res is owned by the tribes now. Yeah, so sixty percent of the tribe now owns um, the land, and forty percent is, is non tribal members. But but that also includes schools, hospitals, and other important stuff that is needed for a continued well health on yeah modern, modern world, living modern on, world uh, stuff. Yeah, and then you had a question. Mm, oh, I, I asked it. Oh, you asked it. Oh, yeah, that was. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've been recording for like these. These uh, the, the the I really love the format of this podcast and the topic, the the theme Indian science because it's holistic. 
And it's very, very easy to talk about psychology, anthropology, natural science, and engineering in the exact same conversation and actually have it make sense. Absolutely. Whereas in more of a Western science uh, paradigm, that's not so easy uh, to communicate Mm cross-disciplinary-wise. So I think that's one of the major benefits having more Indian scientists is going to bring to the world of science. Mm-hmm. So it's cool to come to this place and see how that's kind of unfolding. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoy how social scientists feel about natural scientists, mm-hmm. especially in a non-indigenous sense. <laughs> how uh, social scientists feel like uh, they're not scientists. And I think that that is something that needs to be disproved because... My mom, who was a political scientist, doesn't believe that she is a scientist because she doesn't do the science that I do. Right. But when I took a social science class on uh, methodologies, I was it's like... It's pretty this, rigorous. This is the hardest class I think I've ever taken <laughs> yeah, yeah. in my life. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I, I've taken calculus, I've taken all this math, but, but understanding how people work is, is something that you can't avoid. Yeah, not not in the our field of study mm-hmm. because we it involves at least fifty percent the social and the mm-hmm. cultural. And yeah, and I, think I think that should be more the case even in natural science. Mm-hmm. If it's being conducted in a research sense in indigenous communities, you cannot deny or you can't leave out that social component or mm-hmm. the cultural component. Right, and I know that's a huge gap that I would like to address with my research is looking at why aren't ecological restoration projects automatically a cultural review on a reservation i don't know yet but i'm I'm gonna do my best to figure that out is it kind of similar up there to where when restoration projects happen they don't necessarily go through consultation in the social cultural context see this is the huge disconnect between alaska and everybody else Mm -hmm. because that uh that does happen there is a lot of communication between at least I think there is mm-hmm. there is a lot of communication between not only the indigenous people but the people that live there like mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if it's not an Alaska native family if you live in that community they're going to ask you how you feel about something happening uh, I didn't how just, do they ask uh, it's like c- community forums basically mm-hmm. you, know, you go mm-hmm. uh, there's a representative from the city and or from the town or uh, the town gets together if it's a small enough community and uh, they're yeah. Pose questions like these big companies will come in, uh, these agencies will come in, and they'll propose a project for the area, and they'll take that the response into consideration. They'll try to mitigate what they're doing in that area to have the lowest impact they can. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's it's crazy for me to see that that doesn't happen everywhere. Yeah, because yeah. I've grown up my entire life in Alaska. That's all I've known is the the balance again, mm-hmm. the balance between. Well, the attempted balance between their culture and ours, it's, it doesn't happen everywhere. And that's something I'm just now starting to realize. So with this realization, do you have more of a kind of drive than to work more with 48, the lower 48, and kind of, kind of yeah, having Yeah, man, this... you got to help us out. Yeah, you got to help <laughs> us out, man. Uh, <laughs> we need your help. I've always said Alaska is my home, and I will go back always. Yeah. But uh, seeing that there is a... There's a huge disconnect between the way things happen up there and down here. It does make me want to come down here and figure out what the hell is going on mm-hmm. and why it's not, why they aren't working with you guys. Mm-hmm. So know. we do have community forums. 
right. but they're very poorly advertised. Yeah. Do they advertise really well up there? Or is there an incentive system to get people to show up? Or I think it's uh, it's... I feel like it's a little different up there because the population is so sparse. If you go mm. to one village and say, hey, this is going to happen next week, it's, everybody it's, knows. Everybody already yeah. knows. Uh-huh. Uh, so when I did my report on uh, uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, I looked into it and it, they claimed that they did all of these public forums. They went out and asked all of these people, hey, how do you feel about this? Do you agree with what we're doing? Do you like this? Do you like this plan? And they said, everybody said yes. Everybody loved it. It's like, then why are there protests going on? Mm-hmm. You obviously didn't ask anybody. Uh, and I think I, it's just population size is what I think a lot of it is. It yeah. is I know I, I was working with people in the tribe and people from there. Right. And from my understanding that they did consult with the tribe and the tribe did respond, but the response was no. And now, like through all the litigation, and all that stuff, they tried to argue against that, that the tribe never responded and all these other things but that's not what i've been told from the people so that's fascinating to me how the media spins things and how things end up in the courtroom but that's not necessarily the reality the way the people are seeing it yeah so i'm i'm not sure why things don't happen the same way both here and there i think you did hit on it the population i think (laughs) is a factor yeah yeah Um, do you see a lot of community engagement at these forums where there's a lot of people who are willing to come out and talk about it? Uh, Alaska Native people are very passionate people. If you're doing something they don't like, they'll let you know. Huh. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I see on our, our reservation that kind of lacks is not yeah. really like a community engagement and community involvement. They kind of... No one shows up. No one shows up. Yeah, and I think that's kind of... Even the council meetings. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of sad. Like, I mean, some of them get pretty packed. Mm-hmm. But... I mean, just thinking about that relative to the membership. Yeah. It's like, yeah, a lot of people don't know what's going on just because they're not showing up. And then the people that do show up don't always get it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no one. And so we have a newspaper and um, mm-hmm. they, they do, uh, the uh, what is it called? The minutes. Yeah. And I've maybe read the minutes like four or five times. And one of them was only because I was in there because I presented my research to council. And I was like, I'm going to read what was said. <clears throat> I just came. I just... <laughs> What if they were to release? What if it were they were to create a podcast and release the council minute, the actual audio of the council meeting as a download yeah. on mm-hmm. the cskt.org website? Any council members wow. listening? That is a gr- I, I love that idea, and yeah. then it's completely transparent. People that don't want to read or don't read newspapers mm-hmm. are going to have access to it, and it's going to be available in the future. So. They won't have to track down periodicals or the news article mm-hmm. to be able to know what happened in that meeting. Exactly. Huh, that's a, I don't know if they'd go for that, but if any council members are listening, there's an idea. Uh, yeah. And we're throwing it out there. Uh, just one more thing I wanted to add about community involvement. Uh-huh. Uh, right now I'm doing a, uh, another, another project for one of my classes. Uh, we're studying a, We're doing a case study all semester long about a, a new pipeline that they want to span across Alaska, 800-mile pipeline from the very top to very bottom. Mm-hmm. And most of the natural gas is going to be shipped out to China. Mm-hmm. But uh, the number one rule that they, they have is that the gas has to come to Alaska first. So all across the pipeline, there are going to be spurs or access points where mm-hmm. uh, certain communities can get gas from that pipeline for development that they want to do or for cheaper gas because... 
I, I've seen gas prices in Alaska go up to about fourteen dollars a gallon. So, Whoa! Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. So, wow. Uh, gas prices get extraordinarily high up there, and that's a trip because a lot of oil comes out of there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really rural, so you got to drive a lot. <laughs> yes. That's so messed so, up. So yeah, fourteen dollars a gallon. So this natural gas pipeline coming through would offer them gas. They could, they could do things huh. again, and not it wouldn't cost See, an arm yeah. and a leg. Uh, what I'm doing for my project is uh, I'm talking to the corporation that's doing a lot of the development mm -hmm. and I'm trying to reach out to the communities to see exactly what they said to them like mm -hmm. what happened in that meeting did they actually ask you do you want this pipeline or did they just say hey we're putting this pipeline here we're going to give you some gas for it yeah mm. I want to know exactly what yeah, happened yeah was that their decision like yeah. if you're going to do this give us gas yeah or was it like so, their only option. Actually, just before I started this podcast, I checked my, my voicemail, and they told me to go back to their website and look for it. And that's I called them because I couldn't find it on their website. Yeah. yeah so, so imagine if gonna, those had been <laughs> recorded, yeah. and then uh, the company released those as a podcast. Yeah. Like, these, this is the consultation that we did. Mm -hmm. yeah. Then it's completely yeah. transparent. There's no room for, like, they didn't consult or any of that talk. Yeah. Plus, people... Folks like you will be able to have access to that information Absolutely. and be able to have a much clearer picture of what it looked like so you don't have to run in circles, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. huh. Podcast. Yeah. Let me know cool. what they say. I, yeah. I'd like to know. I should get you guys' contact information. Yeah, I'll, let yeah. You know Definitely. I'll give it to you. Yeah, I want to keep up on that. Because yeah. that, yeah. I've never known that it was over for I've Maybe the most we paid was like $4 in Montana. Maybe a little bit over $4. Yeah, it's $4. gone up. Yeah. Yeah, maybe 5 uh, I don't, I don't remember ever gotten five. five yeah. yeah, but fourteen dollars. Yeah. Then that's that's like the tricky spot is because you're gonna provide a resource that, especially in rural communities that necessarily don't have as much money, that you're gonna give them this benefit, but you're also gonna be taking away a lot of stuff. Yeah, that so reminds me of like on the Blackfeet Reservation, they went to very poor families and ask them if they could uh, explore for oil and minerals on their land and they give them some money for it. Mm -hmm. If you can't pay your bills and your kids maybe f from one week to another may not know if they're going to have dinner or not, why wouldn't you go for that deal? Mm -hmm. So they prey on poor people. That's for sure. And that yeah. kind of sounds like if it's dubious like that, that's kind of what they were doing there. Yeah. These people couldn't afford gas and they found out wow i can get gas at a discount if i let this yeah. pipeline come through why not yeah survival so hmm. that's the alaska that's interesting i'd be development corporation i'd like to hear what that. you what you come up with on that yeah, yeah. Dang. so Dang. yeah so we'll exchange information and mm -hmm. you can go ahead and finish the show with us Oh, we yeah. we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today, folks. And thank you again for coming on the show, yeah. Ronan. I really appreciate it. And for all the other people that stopped in. And if you want to find our podcast, you can find it on all the places like Stitcher and iTunes, Google Play. Yeah. We also have social media. Just subscribed to your guys' podcast. Ah, yes. sweet, yeah. nice. We got one Real more. Real time. Real yeah. time. Um, you can also find us on our social media pages. We are at Instagram and Facebook at NDN Science Show. NDN Science Show. Also, we have a website which is the no, same thing at wordpress.com. At wordpress.com. Yeah. Yeah. See, I'm going to always mess it up. Yeah. It's just so long. So, yeah, it's just <laughs> spelled N D N Science Show. And, uh, and you can Google it and find us also. So, yeah, it's been a 
it's been a blast and I'm excited to see how this turns out and mm-hmm. is just to re-listen to all the cool stuff that we heard today. Um, so I say uh, see you later in my language. Do you want to say it or do you want to say it in yours? I, I don't actually know how to say see you later in Klinko. Okay. okay. Um, so um, if you say Nemeshwichtamin. What is it? Nemeshwichtamin. Nemeshwichtamin. Yep. So that's, yeah, it, that's just what we say and that's how okay. we kind of. Yeah. We're both Salish. I'm also Blackfeet, but yeah. uh, I don't. I don't know how to say see you later in Blackfeet, so I say it in Salish. <laughs> I do need to learn that, though, because the older I get, the more I realize how much more I enjoy speaking Blackfeet compared mm. to Salish. Even though Salish is awesome, it's uh, it's just different. Yeah. You know? Oh, are we going to say what we're grateful for? Oh, yeah. We, we also end the show uh, expressing gratitude. So I'm grateful that for all the people here. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm grateful for. Just to Me be able too. to engage and learn so much from so many different people, especially mm-hmm. these young folks that yeah. are going through these changes and these shifts in society yeah. at such a young age. Got a lot of respect for them, and I'm really glad to be able to just learn some lessons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely grateful for the people that have actually came up to us after our presentation and, and kind of really said how our research is really making them think about a different view on their own research and kind of how they're presenting it. And I think that's really cool because a lot of times I think we kind of forget that what we're doing is something that, that necessarily isn't considered all the time. So I'm grateful to those people and um, I'm grateful to be here and I'm grateful to be with Loja and Ronan. I'm just grateful for everything. I am grateful to be able to speak with people that are passionate about things that I am passionate about. Mm. Uh, And that we both hail from indigenous cultures uh aboriginal yeah. cultures to yeah. america so we're indigenous yes. aboriginal indians yes <laughs> yes yeah. that's what i mean we couldn't say it like that i mean that that includes a lot of people yeah, yeah. yeah. cool well thank you again and yeah, thank you so in salish namashwichdamen namashwichdamen yeah you got that you got yeah. that that's usually what people yeah. struggle with so yeah <laughs> See y'all later. <laughs>